Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Laundry. Welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. Here with Nicholas Chase, it's me, Jackson Laundry. No Garrick Lohan today because I believe he's getting his legs ripped off by the real, actual real Andrew Starkwicks. Uh, at a training camp so he's currently and we just didn't really know and then all of a sudden he posts a picture on instagram and he's with starkey so that's where he's at yep had no freaking clue where garrick was he's just like all of a sudden hey guys i'm not gonna have service for a day or so and we're like oh all right cool and then like instagram try starkey i'm like okay garrick's uh just being a butthole not telling us anything where he is uh he's getting secret training and he's finding all the secrets to how to rip our legs off in des moines so yeah that's okay but that looks like a good time we'll hear about that when he's back for next week for sure but we've got a great guest lined up for today we have ben canute who is an absolute legend in the sport already and he's just getting better all the time super strong he at the olympics and at itu racing obviously he's been very very good at long course as well so we can't wait to hear about how how the heck he manages to do all those different formats of racing and crush it at all of them he's definitely handed nick and i a few beatings over the years um so maybe we can get some insight from him but we've also both had a couple well he's just had bad he's had bad days and we've been able to <laughs> to beat him a couple times but it's only because he's had bad days when he's on point he's you know we can't beat him he gets about a four minute lead on the swim <laughs> we don't see and bike and then he, he doesn't exactly run slow either so no it's incredible what ben has been able to accomplish this interview really covers more or less like a lot of the stuff that we don't know about is as pro triathletes who haven't spent a lot of time in the itu world like what's the what's the selection process how do you earn points um it's another world a lot of age group athletes don't know about too because it's just like we you see the results come from a wts race and you're like oh alistair brownley won again uh, no big effing deal or javi gomez is he's well, i don't know what's going on but anyways this is a good episode <laughs> to learn more like about the in the past now <laughs> those boys are like oh, oh yeah i guess vincent louis uh you know world champion uh wts guy there you go but the bottom line is you'll learn about short course triathlon I guess, Olympic and sprint distance ITU racing and what it takes as a developmental athlete from the age of eight when Ben started to get to where he is now, which is, you know, he's jack of all trades. So listening to that, he'll be coming up in a few minutes. But before we get there, Jackson, what's new with you, buddy? What's new with me? Um, well, I just did the Pust, the Pust B&B triathlon, which is a... Uh, a good, a good friend of mine, Dylan Pust, is up there in Durham, Ontario, and a couple buddies were like, hey, man, I think I could beat so-and-so at a race, and then they're like, well, let's put on our own race then. So Dylan had a few of us up there for a little fun sprint try, and uh, it was a great training day. Perfect one week out from a race, I think, to go do a shorter race and just, you know, get, get the cobwebs scraped out and, you know, maybe don't go full, full bore and just kind of get that race pace dialed in, so... That was what we did. Dylan cranked me on the swim. I couldn't hang on with him and, uh, and he got a lead. And unfortunately I had a major rookie move of not remembering to bring my bike shoes with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So I was riding 
So somebody had a pair of flat pedals there that I could swap on my bike <laughs> and I changed my seat height a little bit. So I did the bike in my Nike next percent shoes. <laughs> no. I had to get those on in T1. So Dylan was about 45 seconds ahead of me by the time I got on the bike. You just taped them on there. And uh, I was able to catch them at about halfway on the bike and then put in about another 45 in the last 10 K. And then uh, we ran pretty similar. I think I, I got a few seconds on him and he was about a minute back, but it was fun. Dylan hasn't had a chance to race and he was, uh, he definitely enjoyed it. And so did the other guys that were there and it was, it was pretty awesome. So that's awesome. And then we played bike ball after, and then me and Dylan were on the same team and we won four in a row. So it was a great weekend. Um, and of course, uh, feeling ready for the race legs are a little sore in a different places, not biking with the proper shoes, but other than that, things are fine. That'll do it. When you're not able to use any of your posterior chain, it's all quads and calves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun though. But, uh, but yeah, so that's me. And that means it's race time coming up for me and you and, uh, Garrick and Leslie. We're going to hey, be is Leslie coming. Yeah, she's ready. She's her runs back. She's, uh, she's back to crushing it. So I think, you know, she had a few weeks off running there, so that's not ideal, but she's going to be ripping anyways. So. Holy cow. I haven't looked at the list for Des Moines. I've only been really looking at Coeur d'Alene, where I'm ranked I'm number nine at Coeur d'Alene, so that's not too bad for a guy like me. There you go. He's like, nice. I get a little bit of a, a leg up on the old numbering system. I'm not quite alphabetical. <laughs> that's good. Well, that means you've been getting up in the top ten, so they, they see that. Yeah. but uh it's uh yeah des moines you know not as you know world championship like as the other races have been so we've got you know sam appleton he's probably the favorite in that one sure. um and then there's a couple other really strong names up there but i don't believe they're going because matt hansen kind of had an injury there and had to take time down and um rudy von berg decided to go to europe um so as long as he made it there He's not going to be racing Des Moines. I think he's racing uh, the Euro champs instead. So yeah, we got McMahon and, you know, some good ITU guys, some couple of young Canadians uh, going over to the long course for the first time. Uh, Jason West, who's, who's been doing a few long course and he's really a threat on the run when he puts it together. So um, should be a good field, but you know, Oh, got Eric Lagerstrom there. He's always going to freaking crush the swim and, destroy our dreams of making a lead pack <laughs> <laughs> that's right he's gonna be no matter what he probably doesn't even swim anymore he's just like yeah i guess i'll just take a bath and now uh, my swim fitness is okay i'll just be able to get out with the leaders anyways so yeah he's incredible on the swim um so yeah i'm just still up here in park city it's like a heat wave in utah right now i don't know what the frig's going on last week we had three days where it was i woke up and there was ice on my truck at 35 degrees Whoa. and now She's peaking out at about high 90s, and this doesn't happen in Park City that often. Um, and then St. George back at home, 112, 115, so early for these temps to be so high. So, man, not not super pumped. But if you're looking to get ready for Kona, St. George is the place to go. They'll so just hot. City, yeah, so Park City is at 7,000 feet. So for that to be that hot is pretty unusual. But, uh, hey, yeah. man, you got to be ready for heat. Des Moines is usually pretty hot, so – it's looking sticky, like nice and humid out there. Yeah, you'll be ready for sure. How are you feeling in the training? And uh, did you recover from that Ironman eventually? I did. It took me a, actually definitely two weeks to recover from Tulsa, even though I didn't get to, I mean, made it to what, 
17 or 18 miles in the run before I tossed her. But still, it just shows you how much it still that took out of me, just biking and running that hard. Um, so, yeah, now it's good swimming with some – there's actually a lot of cool athletes up here right now in Park City uh, that we've been able to just link up with here and there. So it's been fun. Um, a little gravel riding. I'm actually looking forward to, like, having a – man, it seems like I want to race less, but I keep adding races. Like, we've got Des Moines-Coeur d'Alene, which are going to be just – just rippers. So I'm probably gonna have to recover for a whole week after Coeur d'Alene of just in a coma. It's not be a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to only have a week because then we've got Ecuador like July 11th, which is pertinent right after Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, um, it's not ideal. I mean, you just yeah, you race I'm, a lot, but you get you get ex- like racing never like it's not like you get less experience from racing when you're maybe a little tired, like it still adds up and it still counts in the long run. And it might not be the best for racing absolute peak each time, but at some point, you know, you start racing a little bit less and those performances will just skyrocket from all that experience you have. So, well, any more landing in the top 10 is always just awesome. So I think that that's always the goal top 10. If I could even be, coming off the bike in the top five, um, ideal. So I think, I think my swim bike is going to be really close by the end of each of these races. And I'll just be like at Tulsa, I was so kind of, I don't know, I'd say I was 30% dumb as far as my tactics go. And Cody Beals was just ripped me a new one afterwards. He's like, what are you doing first 350 Watts of the first? I was like, I wasn't doing that kind of Watts. Cody. But anyways, he was chirping me pretty hard. So I'll be more patient and just kind of have a more balanced day. Um, but regardless, um, let's hop into the, this episode with Mr. Olympian himself, Ben Canute. He's awesome. And uh, hopefully in a couple of days after you well, – actually, by the time this is out, we'll know if he's made the Olympic team or not. So we're rooting for him. He's a mixed relay guy. Um, so that's it. Let's jump in. All right. Welcome to the episode today. We are thrilled to have Ben Canute on. Jackson and I are going to – drill into Ben and get all the details. No, we're not going to do any of that, but obviously Ben, thank you so much for coming on. I know Jackson and I, and Garrick would, would love to be here as well. He's, I, I don't know what he's doing. We'll have to get more in depth on that. He's running around the North Carolina apparently, but, um, <laughs> but how you feeling, Ben, what's going on and uh, what's, what's on your mind right now? Hey, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm doing great. I'm back in Phoenix right now. Uh, just starting to rebuild for the second half of the year and yeah waiting a little bit uh, to hear about olympic selection and make plans for the rest of the year okay so before we get into the olympic stuff too too much um you know you've done it all you've been there you've been the most successful long-term athlete within the sport and like look at some of the stats just looking even on your website and you know you've got a good wikipedia page too so you know you've done well when you've got a wikipedia page uh you know 2016 obviously olympian um having having a great showing there and then the next year second place ironman 70.3 world championships alcatraz champion 2017 2018 island house champion um 2017 athlete of the year 2015 and it's it goes all the way back you know every year your your name is is up there as you know athlete of the year you're just crushing even since you were a, a young elite so jackson does that just get you all warm and fuzzy inside hearing about like success or what well it doesn't surprise me at all i my kind of first encounters racing ben or seeing ben on the race course was obviously i wasn't there but watching olympics 2016 
Um, but also 2017, I believe was Ben's first year coming into 70.3. And I was actually at the very first race Ben did as a 70.3. And it was my first race as a 70.3, which was 70.3 Puerto Rico, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so seeing him and having this, you know, all this hype around coming into 70.3 and certainly didn't disappoint, uh, with that second place at 70.3 worlds that year. Um, so just talking on that a little bit, you, you obviously did a little bit of ITU before long course. How'd you get into triathlon in general? And then obviously moving up the ranks to Olympics, how did that kind of like play out in terms of timeline for you? For sure. So, uh, the sport of triathlon goes like way back for me. So, uh, my dad got into it when I was real young. Uh, so I remember watching him at the races and thinking how cool it was. And we, he would videotape the Ironman world championships, or we'd actually have a friend do it. Cause we didn't get the channel. And then we would watch the videotape. Um, <laughs> but the, the tri city, uh, area is just outside of Chicago had, uh, this unique kind of pocket of, triathletes and a club there and a lot of people got together and uh put on a kids triathlon so when I was about eight years old that was when my I first did my race there and from there it just kind of took off there was a the the group of parents got even a little bit smaller and they started a, a kids tri team that was very high performance uh directed so that was my first real introduction into USA triathlon and traveling the country and uh, that was a couple of years after my first one, but I mean, even that first year we went down to nationals for iron kids, uh, did it, raced in Atlanta there. And from that point I got the, we, we always were talking about draft legal cause that was Olympics. And, um, that was my first introduction and, uh, we just really took off and there are other guys like Kevin McDowell and, um, you know, Lucas versus Vegas that eventually came in. And so that, that was all kind of centered out of Chicago. And um, yeah, we just, that, that was the first introduction into triathlon and to see how competitive the sport could get. And I just kind of had my mindset that this is an awesome sport, kept coming back because the people were great and just kept working my way through the ranks through the youth elite, junior elite. And I guess I, I dabbled in non-draft a little bit, but my eyes were always kind of on that, Olympics first, really short course racing, um, and then moving on from there. Was your swim always like such a crusher? Was it always so fast? Well, I had to work into it. So um, I, I don't particularly feel like I was super talented off the bat for any one of the sports. Um, the run, I've obviously had to work on more than the others. And I just had a natural love for swimming and for cycling as well. And it was just a lot of hours. I wasn't ever like the fastest, fastest um, kid growing up. And I started swimming before my first triathlon when I was about seven. Uh, so I just had a lot of experience. And then it was just all those yards in the pool um, that kind of got me to being a good swimmer by the time I, I really hit my stride in triathlon as I was like 12, 13, 14. Um, and then 15 is when I think I, I kind of really had my breakout year um, at least as a, a youth elite, junior elite. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I credit my swim teams a lot to that. Uh, you get a lot of racing as a swimmer and, um, I just had some really good coaches along the way. Okay. So ultimately you had like a heavy swim team track to really boost all that where, you know, some of us never had that damn opportunity, man. That's so awesome that it skyrocketed everything. Like, do you think it was too much though? In, in some sense, like 
swim swimmers usually tend to get burnt out pretty early in their careers. Like, do you feel like that's possible? Oh yeah. I mean, I swimming has a high burnout rate just because you can do so much in the water without getting injured. It's like at a running at a certain point, like your body breaks down, um, you know, when you start doing really high mileage and everything and swimming, if you can, um, kind of get away from like the shoulder injuries, you can have, uh, you can put in a lot of miles. So I think that, and my dad has always kind of mentioned this too. And I kind of believe it swimming built the engine for me. It's just agree, such a yeah. big aerobic sport. So yeah, I was lucky to kind of get injected into kind of a, a really good quality swim club early on. And first one I did, you know, it's an introduction, just a summer program. And, um, you know, it's like, it's like people doing travel baseball. You take that next step up. We started swimming in the winter then, and you just accumulate all of that. And, um, so where I maybe had a bit more of, uh, time in the pool than some people had, uh, I, I always had to have extra miles in the run. And that's what I've kind of had to work more and more at in developing run form technique and all of that. Cause it just, uh, for me, I didn't have as much and it didn't come maybe as quickly or naturally. Well, real quick too, can you give our listeners some perspective into the type and volume of swimming it took you to get where you are right now? Like yards per yeah. per week or meters per week. What do you, what were you looking at? So it varied on the team and I'm pretty bad at, you know, remembering specific stuff, especially from early on. Um, but you know, when I was in high school and even middle school, like during the summer was when club you'd swim long course and you'd always have a morning swim practice. And a lot of that was dry land. And then you'd get in and swim afterwards. And then a lot of times you're coming back in the afternoon. So um, I would say you're doing at least 5k a day, uh, a lot of times like seven or above. And when you hit high school swimming, those programs try and cram in um, a bunch of swimming for Illinois, at least in the winter time. And my program wasn't always super high volume. Um, Cause I know there were teams that swam in the morning and afternoon every day. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were 10 K every day with weight training. Um, but we were like, we definitely hit 5k all the time. Cause I swam the 500 too, that maxed out the distance in high school, which still felt like a sprint. Um, but yeah, high school swimming starting. Cause I went from cross country and then went into high school swim right after. And it was like a crash course uh, Thanksgiving where you're trying to find your form again after only pretty much running. Uh, and by the time you hit winter break, it was two a days. And basically while well, everybody else was out enjoying the snow in Chicago or going out and doing stuff, I was like napping on the couch and just trying to like get myself through the training block there. So it's definitely, it's crazy what swimmers do all the time, but I, I'm lucky that I had triathlon to kind of, balance it all out because i think if i was all in on one sport the whole time i, I would have burnt out you know years ago yeah and so that's you know talking about swimming you mentioned swimming in high school and then you obviously started targeting like kind of probably going for the olympics sometime after high school kind of did you go to school did you focus on sport and like when did it look like you were like oh man i can really make the olympics here and and make that big push for it yeah so my parents always stressed education um i was never going to be able to skip college and just go full-time triathlete uh, i always had to have kind of a backup plan um and in high school 
you know, I, I, that idea had already been planted, like, Hey, you could go to the Olympics or this is something in the future. Um, but I chose my school to balance kind of different aspects. I, I wanted a big university, um, experience. So I, and I also wanted to study some sort of sports physiology or just physiology in general. And then I wanted a place I could train while I was there. And you and, were there, right? Yeah, I went, so I chose University of Arizona after looking like coast to coast, like looking everywhere from University of Florida, University of San Francisco, uh, Boulder, like all these different places. But I, I went and visited Tucson and it was just the right mix of everything. And that's when I was able to kind of focus fully on uh, swim, bike and run and not have to just do an NCAA sport or just a high school sport. Um, and I, after that first year, I saw that I had enough credits to, to graduate a year early. And so I focused in on that because that would give me extra time to be able to um, train and qualify before the, the 2016 Olympics. So I graduated 2014 and had that year and a half to really focus in, get my points finished up and get on that qualification track. And I, I think that after that freshman year, uh, that's when USAT approached me too, um, the high performance director at the time and everybody, they were like, hey, we have this opportunity to go to Europe to race for about a month or so, do like four races and four weekends and uh, get experience over there. And I was not going to, I had done well at collegiate nationals and had qualified for my pro card. And I was going to take the year to just race as an amateur and just get some wins and just learn how to win that way. Do the high V triathlon as an elite amateur because they're giving yeah. away a car that year. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, I jumped at the opportunity with USA triathlon and that really set me up, I think for the next, you know, three years or so to be able to qualify for Rio. Well, and you were just racing your tail off. I mean, I was looking at the stats of all the races you were doing every, every year, and it was just monumental how the, the WTS circuit. And I remember even when, when the Brownlees were getting all the hype, I would pay attention to all the races and travel associated with all that. Like that just had to have been so tough to keep fit, to be in all these different countries, locations, new gyms, new food. How did you, how did you fathom all of that? I mean, cause nutrition is huge. Like what did you just eat a bunch of rice everywhere you went? Like what, how did it work? So we were lucky to be supported by USAT. So they kind of had um, a base camp that we would go to. We trained a lot out of Victoria, Spain, up in the boss country okay. um, every summer. And you kind of base out of Europe. And I just found after time, like I didn't like being away for a month and a half, just living out of a suitcase all the time. I did better with kind of concentrated small race blocks over in Europe and then coming home. And, uh, I, that took a couple of years to kind of figure out. Um, but yeah, the, the travel's crazy and you have to just make each place your home. And it, it takes like kind of not being super strict, like you know, sometimes some people have a specific race meal that they always have to have before a race. You find a lot of the ITU guys, they have something they would prefer, but you know, they could pretty much eat anything. They're like, I'll make something work. Like I know basically what I need. Yeah. Candy bars, whatever you can do. But it's, uh, I think the hardest part about ITU racing is, um, it's just so brutal. Like breaking in it gets easier like the higher up you go almost like if you can be consistent at a WTS level you have the funding you have um kind of the travel that's being paid for you have the like the prize money that's available there versus these Conti cups are just 
not supported as much because it's, you know, it's the breakthrough period. You have to kind of prove yeah. your worth and it, it takes kind of a lot. You got to accumulate points. And so at the beginning, you almost have to be ready to race like at any minute. My first WTS race happened my second year in Europe. And I was going over there and had, you always have a rough idea of what you're going to do, but I got the call up like, Hey, we can get you in. Or you rolled onto the start list, like whatever. And they're like, you got like a week and a half or you got two weeks or something like you're going to, it was Kitzbühel, Austria when they raced oh, up the mountain and everybody had been training specifically for that race and like trying to lose weight, making super light bikes. And I was just like, cool, like, I guess I'm going to go. I'm not like, you know, the lightest I've ever been, but I'll go out and I'll race that race. And, um, you just gotta, you know, kind of be resilient in that consistency. It's, it's almost like you have to, you have to hold fitness and you have to choose your peaks very carefully and just find that high level of competitiveness throughout the year. Um, I'd wager too, like a lot of our listeners might not know the typical progression within the, I, the ITU circuit. Yeah. So like what types of races did you have to break into and then how did you accumulate points? And then how did you plan to then use those points for maybe like maybe I could get into a WTS race and how do they decide whether you're going to be there or not based on who shows up? Like, can you briefly cover some of that? Yeah. So we could have a whole podcast on I know. Uh, ITU intricacies and points and ranking systems. So the basics are you have like your um, world ranking, your ITU points ranking, and that's kind of the basic points ranking that they'll use. And you get a certain amount of points for winning a continental cup, which is the smallest, like the races we have out in Florida at Claremont, Sarasota and stuff. Yeah. And then you, you work your way up to a world cup, which has more points and a sprint distance doesn't have as much as a Olympic distance, um, at the certain level. Um, and then it's the WTS and they basically just go down the list. So a WTS race, they let in 65 guys, 60 guys. And if every single person in the top 60 signs up, that's who goes. And there's also quota limits for um, different countries, like five, I think, per per country. So you basically work your way down the list and you can only count a certain amount of Continental Cups, a certain and then the World Cups and WTS, you count like seven scores. And it's kind of this rolling list where points expire. So it's learning the intricacies of that. Cause then in an Olympic year, you have your Olympic points ranking, you have your WTS points ranking for the world championship. So it's, it's kind of learning all of that and figuring out, Hey, I've got these three continental cups. Can I get into one of these lesser known world cups? If I didn't do, if I didn't win each of those and like get some extra points here and see if I can bump myself up. So that's kind of where it started. I mean, in the U S it's easiest to try and find the continental cups in Florida. There's, um, some there used to be a couple scattered around the U.S. a little, and then up in Canada they've had them. And then then it's just kind of talking with um, USA Triathlon, at least in our case, and seeing like, hey, is there an opportunity where I can slip into a World Cup somewhere as you're starting out? Okay. Wow, that's intense. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a lot, lot of a lot of things. And then you know, there's always. Uh, at least in Canada, for sure, you hear, you know, athletes think they should have been selected for a race and they weren't, and they maybe thought they should go to a, like, like you said, you kind of have to, you have to earn your points, but then you also have to, 
be selected until you're auto qualified for these races. Right. And then, so at least in Canada, I know that they basically choose who they send to go to like a world cup, for example. So like you said, like breaking from that continental cup to world cup, that's a, that's a breakthrough you got to get and, and things can go either way so easily. So. Yeah. Um, and each country gets to determine like who does, like if you even get to race. So you do have to have your country backing when you get to, uh, I think the world cup or especially the WTS and, um so far in my experience it's yeah, a lot of times it's if you earn the points you get your choice of start but let's say if somebody's ranked up high and they decide hey i'm not going to that the country can put somebody in put that person in still and then say we're going to sub in this other person to give them a shot mm -hmm. um, but i do know countries have uh standards a lot of times like i think the french um you almost have to win or podium at a world cup to even be considered for a WTS. It sounds like Canada, you know, has similar stuff. You have to be approved because those spots are kind of coveted when they come around, especially if you only have a handful of athletes who are really earning points or in the case of France, where you have 15 French guys who all want to go to one race because out of like the French grand Prix series. So it's uh it's definitely, there's a lot involved to it. It's not necessarily as cut and dry as like signing up for races and just showing up. I got yeah. a quick question too. Um, but so back when you were, you know, playing the major Olympic, um, when you raced in the Olympics, actually, I mean, you, that was like during Gwen Jorgensen's reign as well. Did things change dynamically within USAT? Did we get more funding since, you know, she was obviously dominating for, you know, <laughs> on everything? Did anything change or was it basically like same amount of stuff or did you notice anything that was kind of funky or cool within that period of time? Yeah. I mean, the Olympics is, it's, it's all a machine. Like it's a, it's almost like a trickle down. So like the, the Olympics is the big goal and the U S Olympic committee looks at all of the different governing bodies and they have uh, basically like a metal quota that you're supposed to earn. So they might look at USA triathlon and say, Hey, we want you, you're supposed, you're going to win a medal. Like you need at least one medal and then we'll give you your funding. So okay. funding is determined a lot by performance, especially in the Olympics. So an Olympic year is especially, you know, special for them to, to get that. So, um, I know stuff like that with Gwen, I obviously don't know the numbers or, or anything like that, but um, having people like Gwen, Katie, you know, Morgan winning these WT or getting on the podium with these WTS races, like the women for a long time were kind of funding the men's team because, you know, we had this extra money coming in from Gwen, um, from what I saw, like, I don't, I, and I don't want to say too much and speak out of turn. Cause like, no, I obviously was kind of on the periphery of it. And I just was like kind of doing my thing, but when you're in an Olympic sport, um, yeah, the, the, at least in the U.S. with the USOC, that's, that's a pretty decent chunk of USA triathlons funding in some cases, especially for the high performance program. Um, and so that helps, you know, in the whole running of the high performance team. Okay. Um, so, yeah, one more Olympic question, and then we can move on to, you know, other stuff that you've accomplished, which are also awesome. But can you, you know, how did you handle that, that pressure and always having to be on and was there a lot of um you know sports psychology that helped you get through it all or i mean it had to have just been immense going to bed every night like i have to keep the pressure on i have to make sure that i'm every day is is magical otherwise you know because you're you know gonna be an olympian so how, how does that work yeah there's uh 
I'd say, you know, I handled the pressure well in a lot of situations, but there's others that I, I think that I didn't really handle the pressure well. And um, I think that I did work with a sports psychologist and still do, especially after the, the Rio test event where um, I had arguably one of the worst races of my career where um, I was coming out, didn't make the front pack in the uh, swim, was going backwards on the bike and just barely made it home on the run. Um, but like readjust and talk to a sports psychologist, started refocusing, focusing on what I could control. And I think that really helps my mindset and going in and, and eventually qualifying because I was able to have some good performances off of that. And then when it came down to that final race, I was kind of looking at it like, Hey, you know what? Like I get to go out and race and I'm could go and, you know, make my career at the time and qualify for the Olympics. But if I don't like, that's going to be okay. Like there's always another race. Like it's yeah. not going to ruin me if I don't go. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of times like a good way of approaching racing is obviously we're all going out there trying to win, trying to just crush it. But I try and focus on just exactly what I can do and what I'm capable of. And if I can go out and have my best possible race and I end up first or ninth, like at least I can be proud of the effort and that I emptied the tank and that I did everything I could. And then it's just, you know, people are just better on me on the day and I have to go and fix that. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. And that, yeah, that obviously has carried over from racing, you know, at the Olympics to long course. And, um, actually, you know what, while we have a quick second, how did, how did you find like your, your performance at the Olympics? Like we talked so much about it. What about the race itself? How did you feel about it? And, you know, were you proud of that day obviously making it's amazing but how'd the race play out for you yeah I had uh two-thirds of the race were really really good and then the last third was just I think the tank was empty um I, I feel like at the Olympics um I, I think like the way that I trained and the training I had going into it was so good and I was pushing myself so hard I think there's some of it where I, I maybe didn't go in fully rested or I, maybe I didn't get the taper right. However, um, I, I don't think I could have done anything different on the day. Like I, I put myself in the front pack. Uh, I rode at the front and kind of dropped and, and sat in as much as I could, I guess, even though those guys were just crushing it around every <laughs> corner. Um, but got myself off the bike in like a top 10 ish position. Um, but just didn't have the run legs. I think that like, I, I was running really well that year but it just didn't really translate on the day. So that's where it's a, a bit disappointing for me. But at the end of the day, like I, I put myself out there and when it comes to the Olympics, it's like, it, it's the old, it's the Ricky Bobby saying like, if you're not first, you're last. And it, yeah. it, if you're not first, second or third, like, especially in the U S it's kind of like, can you name who got fourth at the Olympics last time around or back in 2012, uh, 2004, all of that. And it's kind of like metal or nothing a lot of times. So, um, that just being able to experience the race though, and put it all out there like that, that was pretty awesome for me. And just being able to soak it all in, that was, that was what I was there to do and just see what would happen. Well, at the same time, like it's on your resume, Ben, I, I looked it up and <laughs> I was like Olympian. Every time you hear Ben Canoe, it's, you know, Olympians there. So like what, regardless of if you medal or not, like we're, I don't know. Anytime we know that you're on the start line um, or we're racing Olympians, it's, it's incredible to know 
what you've done to get to that point. And I think the amount of respect that carries with that term is just in my book. And I think probably any of your competitors would say the same thing. It just it carries so much weight and we have so much respect for what you've built within USAT triathlon. And you know, obviously you've, you've been through it, you lived it and they've learned from having you part of it and you've developed and paved the way for future athletes. So now transitioning to long course, like you've just done probably more than you even give yourself credit for. So just having that experience has, has set you so far apart in my book. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So that's amazing. Like do the Olympics. And then the thing in my head, that's really like, I'm wondering is how do you decide after the Olympics? Like, okay, now I'm going to go, you know, do long course and try that <laughs> out. Like, what was it that made you do that? And it's pretty unique at your age to have done that because typically when guys do that, they'll have been to a few Olympics or they'll want to be transitioning out from kind of the ITU side. But for you, you're just kind of doing both. So how did you decide to go about that? So yeah, coming off the Olympics, I, I knew I had other goals and I've been getting asked, you know, by my sponsors and by other people, when are you going long? Like, when are you going to do an Ironman? Where are you going to do this or that or half Ironman even like for years, even before, like, I mean, I, I feel like I was a junior triathlete and people are like, dude, when are you going to do the Ironman? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's a really long I'm day. 13, man. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> Dang. Like, how about I just do these races for now? But, um, I know that that was always a goal and the way that my, uh, strengths played into long course, like I'm just a strength athlete. Um, I'm not like some of these fleet footed runners or just like, um, you know, that high, high intensity all the time. Like I like a good, strong, steady effort. Um, you know, surges are great, but like these guys push, you know, you look at some of the power files, like you're over 600 Watts, like 45 times in a race. And otherwise you're like, you know, kind of just pedaling in the pack and you might be fluctuating a bit, but it's like, you're just so high end in that sort of training. Um, and my energy systems are just a bit different than that. And I've always been interested in the long course stuff. Um, and I knew after Olympics, I wanted to give it a shot. I've done, I did some non-draft racing, uh, that was shorter even before that a little and, and always enjoyed it. And so I knew, I could do pretty well at the half Ironman stuff and just, you know, took 2017 as like a, I want to give it a shot and I'll, I'll stick with the Olympic stuff and we'll kind of see what happens. And, um, it, it was announced sometime around there too, that, uh, the mixed relay was going to be in the 2020 Olympics as well. And so then my coach Jim and I came up with this kind of plan of balancing, super sprint and long course, like half Ironman racing, which we, we seem to, that, that's where both of my strengths kind of played in and just kind of took it from there. And I, I just kind of embraced that challenge. And I feel that those two opposites, which look kind of like counterintuitive when you put together a race schedule, like how are you doing a 20 minute race and a four hour race? But the way that we trained, I think it, it really helped me overall, like the leg speed from the short stuff helped me in the long course and that strength and that aerobic base that I got from training for half Ironman really helped me to push all out a steady effort for 20 minutes. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the transition obviously went very well because that performance at 70.3 worlds in 2017 was incredible. I was at that race, never saw you of course, but uh, for those who maybe don't remember that race or didn't see it, 
uh, Ben was in a group of just him and Gomez out of the water. And then you really pushed the pace on the bike and got a big lead on everyone on everyone at the race. And uh, you were in the lead for quite a long time until Gomez finally did catch you later in the run. But um, that was one of the most incredible bikes I've ever seen. What was, you know, was that something you'd planned before the race? And like, what were you thinking during that race? Like, Holy crap, I might win this thing. And I've just pulled off a crazy tough thing to do, which is pulling away from the pack at a, at a world championship. Yeah, I had, I think that's kind of the perfect crossing of like opportunity and, and kind of fitness. So I was really swim fit coming off of the Olympics. And then my bike strength that year, we worked a lot at it because I had to build up from racing Olympic stuff to, to this riding the time trial bike for, for two hours. Um, and the run was, was coming along nicely in each one, but I, I knew like running against like Gomez, Tim Reed, Tim Don, like a lot of these guys, uh, were going to run faster than me on the day. And our plan was always, let's push the swim and just see where we come out, see what happens. Cause we had done that in St. George, um, Puerto Rico, not as much cause it was the first one. And like my job there was, was basically to shadow Andy Potts the best I could and just like learn from him. Cause he's like a metronome out on the course, just like always paces correctly. Yep. Um, but yeah, I just got out of the water and was like, I just was having fun with it. Like I got super pumped to be racing a world championship on home soil and didn't have too much expectations, but had like process goals along the way. And, uh, the training I did, like, I knew like my 10, 15 minute power was really good. Um, and so I was excited for that hill that we had in Chattanooga right at the beginning. And it just like made Gomez, I think, think twice about it. If I was going to go and hold it that long. And I pushed like my cap was like 400 Watts or something for that climb. Sweet and Jesus. we just speaks, we, I just kind of held, like I just had good legs that day and I pushed a little harder and he doesn't need to push that hard. Like if he takes the risk on the bike, he just takes away from his run, which, you know, he ran six minutes into me or something at the end of the day. And then I was just riding steady in my zones and just trying not to let the pack catch. And I was actually surprised in seeing the gap that I had. because I think it was this just strategic, uh, just kind of almost um, unique situation where it was a big pack of guys with really strong runners. And there were a couple of strong cyclists, but if the strong cyclist pushed, like Sebi wasn't going to pull Gomez up to the front and then ruin his run legs. He was going to try and make other people work. So there is no real cohesiveness to that group. And that just allowed me to take advantage of the situation and have some good fitness on the day and like a good bike split. And yeah, I ended up, I don't know, I was like four minutes from the pack, like ahead of the pack on there. And yeah, I just remember because I mean, I was pretty green at this point at the half Ironman distance and people were pretty surprised that I was there. And I remember specific people yelling at me, like, do not go out so fast, like settle down, like just chill out that first mile. Cause, um, I was, and I, I was pretty good at pacing cause we had been working with running power. So I was like trying to stay in my zone. Um, but yeah, that crowd there was pretty awesome too. So it was hard not to get a little bit too excited, but yeah, yeah I think it was just like that fitness slash, like just the strategy, the strategy of the day, like different, everybody's just clashed in a way that, that didn't play into having the group ride fast. Were you just about to say strategy? 
I don't even know. I was trying to come out. It was, <laughs> it was just whatever was happening with the group, the, yeah, the strategery, the strategic <laughs> That's the aspects best. of the race, That's um, a, whatever it was. Up. Yeah. But that's that's something really unique about long course racing too. Is there's like a chess match going on in this for this two hour bike leg, and it's, it works especially well when you have a challenging bike course because if it's flat, it's a little bit more guns blazing and people will take more risks. But as we just saw at St. George, um, whatever couple like a month ago, people are a little bit more hesitant to push because they not especially if there's a tough run like. And if you can get away and if you've got that swim, like you have, there's an opportunity. So I think, I think that's exactly, you know, that's the beauty of our long course sport. And I think the sport's changing. Like, I don't think nowadays people would just let one guy just go off on the front, take someone like Dietlip to just like, you know, hammer on the front and just lay it all out there. Um, And, you know, even a course like Texas, when we raced there, guys were riding hard but then when people bunch up at the front of the race then everybody looks around and they're going like who's going to make the move and it takes like yeah it's hard to like when you don't have that 20 meter draft or like with the current rules it's so hard to create a gap on the bike right now even when you have a climb like snow canyon in saint george where it's like guys can throw down watts and create gaps but that group still pacing wind direction like all of that stuff it still keeps a group bunched and right now like the quality of the field is just encouraging you know guys to fill in gaps and the breaks to not really happen so yeah it's creating some like almost like itu-esque uh race dynamics with or bike racing race dynamics where you have to manage your you know the matches in your matchbox really well and if you burn them on the bike to create a gap you want to make sure you have just enough to be able to hold that on the run yeah yeah i've seen that change as well and and uh like you said there's just enough guys in the similar ability level that it's super hard to get away even on a longer climb um because everybody's strong climber now everybody like all the top you know 20 percent, 30 percent are very very strong there now um which is exciting but like you said as the current rules are it's a bit of a chess match, which it's a different kind of race, but I think a lot of people are uh, kind of pushing to get that 20 meter zone or, um, or, you know, increase it in some way. What would you like to see that? Like, do you think that would be good for the sport? You know, I think we saw a lot in Daytona and Miami that it creates some exciting racing when you have the 20 meter draft rule. Um, but those were also like different fields and you still had packs and everything. And um I I'm actually, I'm not partial to any one way, like whatever the rules are, like, I think it'd be great if we had the 20 meter draft rule, but that kind of presents its own challenges and field size and, and everything like that. Like, I think we were all talking before Daytona going like, Hey, there's like 50 guys on this start list. And if everybody rides 20 meters apart, like, what is that? Like a a K that everybody's strung out and the, the track is like, uh, 4k long or something. So, um, it, it creates unique situations, but like, I think that, you know, whatever the race is, I try and go in with the mindset, like that's just the race dynamics, like, and it's hard kind of in its own way. Cause it creates those different strategies. It creates like whatever, a little bit of surging in the pack. And it's, you know, it goes from like ITU to Ironman to now these like clash challenge races where you're like, Hey, each one is going to have different, like, you know, quote unquote, like pack dynamics on the bike. Um, 
So I think just, just as long as officials are consistent in how they call everything and make sure that it's a fair race and people follow the rules and don't push it too much, then you can at least plan and be like, okay, this can be a fair race this way, or you just, you just have to adjust your strategy. So it's, it's definitely an interesting question, but I, I don't know, like if we're going to be then, if everything goes to 20 meters, are we going to eventually want to go to 30 or something? So, yeah. or just it's, like it's, indiv- everything's individual time trial staggered by. Yeah. You know, nobody's <laughs> close and then you don't see what actually actually happening. So, <laughs> and it depends on your goal of it too. Like if your goal is to have like a super unique, like make sure we have like everybody is riding individually on the bike and faces like the full brunt of the conditions then yeah, you want to push that gap as much as possible. But if you want to have a race, then you just have to establish whatever you think, like, okay, it's the 12 meter draft rule. We just know that, you know, the six guy sitting back is going to be soft pedaling while the guy at the front's going to be hammering, but that's just the way it is. So it's, it's all dependent on, you know, what is your goal of the specific race format? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you've, you've seen the sport evolve a lot as well through your career, and you've been part of most of the racing that's been taking place from the Daytonas to the ITUs to the, you know, the high V's and, you know, what type of, what type of format organization, because, you know, obviously world triathlon, or I mean, Ironman versus WTS versus challenge versus some of the other independent races, like, have you found um, any systems that seem to be a little bit more beneficial or proper or fair? Um, or do you just kind of, I mean, obviously I know you go into it with, with the rules of the rules, but you know, what do you prefer? They all have their nuances and, um, certain series are created for, for certain people. Um, ITU is, you know, full on pretty much professional where they have age group races, but the focus is on, broadcasting a professional race and going to the Olympics. Like that's, that's the culmination of the ITU series is, you know, Olympic games. And that's the peak. Uh, when you look at like challenge and what we saw in, in Daytona and Miami, that is combining, you know, like an Ironman and ITU or Ironman is like, they're not really shy about it. It's like a for-profit type of system where you know they have a big age group race and and the pros are there too but their their thing is to sell out the slots and then create like a a good race experience that way and and the name brand you know they they basically helped build the sport of triathlon so they have that sort of pull and i think that this like challenge and clash and having them at the racetracks like this especially are creating the pto like creating the collins cup is you're you're starting to see more of uh like what itu is is almost wanted to do you have this really great broadcast that is showing not just the front but you know the fight for second and third and even the mid-pack fight and it's exciting and creating drama i think that we've all been we all know has been in triathlon um but it's been cool to see it in some of these races and you know i've raced every single one of them and i respect what each of these series offers and um i've enjoyed racing at each of these series but i'm i'm really interested to see how this kind of racetrack closed circuit type racing progresses because i just think it's it's something that's really unique and, and it makes it easier to to broadcast the races versus 
you know, Ironman did a great job with the St. George race, but that's just such a hard race to capture. It's got two different areas that you're in. You have to have motorbikes all over the course. Like you're covering a span of like, like a 40 mile circle at least of, uh, of this diameter that you have to cover this race. Um, and that's just hard logistically. Whereas, um, what we saw in Daytona, like that was like nuts. I don't think anybody expected it to be that crazy of a race with all the lead changes. And I think pretty much all of it was captured on camera right there. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question that it's, it's really got that advantage of the spectator friendliness, which is definitely what this PTO wants to keep pushing because that's the big push with the PTO is to make it more of a mainstream sport. And if people don't understand what's going on or can't watch it, then obviously it doesn't work. So this is, this is a big opportunity for sure for us. Um, so yeah, you mentioned challenge Daytona. Um, so last year, 2020, that's when, that's when you had your baby. That's when you, yeah. you know, had a bit of a, everyone had a bit of a weird year that year, but what, you know, I also heard that you really worked on your run, um, that year specifically. So what kind of, you know, in 2020, what are the, th- obviously having the baby, how did that affect everything? How did that affect your training? And like, what were your goals for 2020 to set you up well for this year? 2020 was kind of crazy as obviously from the start, cause it was going to be kind of putting the cap on my resume for being selected to the Olympic team. I came off a really strong 2019, um, with some ITU racing and, um, my first couple of races, uh, we're going to be like super league and the Florida races and, um, just kind of checking some boxes and still balancing, uh, some half, half distance racing. But, uh, the pandemic obviously put that all on hold and for up and through until like May, I think we just tried to like maintain fitness. And I think a lot of people were in that situation where you're kind of waiting, 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 like, are things going to open back up? Are we going to have a race here? And obviously it never did. So we took a step back and just kind of said, like, we have this unique opportunity to not have to be prepared for any race demands. And we can let the swim and bike fall back a little bit, just put them in, you know, maintenance mode or just keep the feel a little bit of them. And let's start, you know, focusing on run and run speed and the areas that you've lacked. And I think that amount of running and just the focus of that helped me start to come around and I started just stringing together more and more workouts that, that were good. And, you know, with everything, uh, yeah, obviously like Courtney was pregnant and we were dealing with that and we found a house that we moved into. And, um, I just don't think that my swim and bike had enough attention paid to it to really let my run show off in the three races that I did at the end of the year. Um, and crazily enough, um, my daughter came 11 days early while I was in Daytona. So I was like trying to figure out all of that too. And that was nuts. That was super hard for Courtney and she was amazing through it. And I was like, every doctor was like, nah, you're going to be fine. Like nobody's, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. Like you can go and you should be back. Like I made the trip super short and, um, yeah, my daughter from the get-go was letting me know who's boss, letting both of us know what's up. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that was that was great to have those opportunities and kind of try and see what was missing. And then I feel like we addressed a lot of that. And finally, in like Miami and Texas specifically, I was able to show off more of like all of the years of work on the run and kind of specifically, I guess, what we had been working towards in 2020 that just you know, never really got to, to come out. 
for sure. Yeah. You crush those races and yeah, like you mentioned the run you're in Miami, you kind of, you came back from, you know, you ran with Lionel for a bit, dropped back, and then you moved through some guys who had run faster than you earlier in the run. And that's something that, um, the sign of a really good runner obviously is if you can finish very strong in the last, you know, one third, one quarter of the run. Uh, so that was incredible. And then Texas seeing you kind of, Oh man, you blew that one up. It was awesome. Yeah, you crushed that run. You w- went through and kind of, uh, caught Sam long really late. And, uh, that was pretty amazing. So like you said, that's something that I guess people wouldn't have expected from you in previous years. Usually it might've been like, okay, crush the swim and bike and run well, but you're probably not going to pass somebody late in the run, but to do that twice early in 2021, obviously you've really improved that, which is amazing. Uh, so, and now I, your, your focus has shifted back to the Olympics. So done a couple of IT races recently, you're trying to qualify. And then there's also some nuances now with qualifying for the mixed team relay. And how does that work? Like, can you explain how it works where can you go to the Olympics for just mixed team relay or do they, do they select separate teams or is it the individuals also do the mixed team relay? Right. So for an Olympic team, you get uh, two or three spots, essentially. Um, If you're a smaller country or a country with not as many athletes, you might only have one guy who qualifies in the rankings, but for the U S we were trying to get three spots and those three athletes would be the pool that you choose for the, for the individual, as well as then you create your relay team from those three spots, from those three people who race. So basically it's, you're picking an Olympic team like normal years, essentially, but you have two races that you have to have those three or two athletes race in um, just because the quota for the games, we could have more events, but they just didn't have room for more people from my understanding. So the past uh, two years, three years now, um, that Olympic, uh, ranking system has been open, um, for Olympic points for all of the rankings of the individuals in the countries. Um, and to get three spots, you have to have three guys in the top 30. And obviously there was a pause in 2020 and it just reopened. And the U S was just barely in the three spots up until this last weekend where, um, Australia had their Oceania champs and one of their guys won that. And that bumped him up, which bumped our third guy off of that top 30. So for a majority of the the time, we've had three spots for the guys. And now we only have two. And so now we're going to have those two guys will race the relay and then also the individual. So, wow. And with the relay, it just creates this, um, I guess, problem that you have to solve as a federation. And how do you select for a mixed relay? Because obviously if you have somebody like a world, like Vincent Louis, who's a world champion, he does it all. Like he, he wins the Olympic distance races, the sprint, and then the super sprint, it translates down, but not everybody can do that. And the demands of a super sprint race are way different from a sprint or even an Olympic or even a sprint. So we had auto selection spots, which is one of the reasons I had the opportunity that I had never gone for the individual I was trying to say I'm a mixed relay specialist like if I'm going back to the games and like being realistic I'm not a 29 minute 10k guy you know maybe on my best day I'm 30 minutes and change um but 
that like winning an Olympic medal, you got to run 29 minutes now for a 10 K it's insane what these guys can run. Yeah. And so all my focus has been like, I'll show my mixed relay capability and go to the super sprint world cup. And I was able to like get a medal there. They said sprint distance races, especially WTS could potentially show some. So I went to Edmonton and I was able to get a, a seventh place there. And I've raced a number of mixed relays over the years to, to show that as well. And um, tend to do well in them because the automatic selection spots were in Tokyo in the individual race, which I didn't race, but I raced the relay. And then finally in Yokohama, which I had the, I, I didn't have the ranking to get in on my own, but one of the guys decided to not race. So they subbed me in and you can't turn down a spot to, you know, potentially make the team, even if it's like just a couple of percent chance of like a, a crazy breakaway or something. So tried to race that but now we're at the point where olympic period selection points are all over it ended this weekend so the u.s team is now in we have discretionary spots to fill we only have one for the guys and then we have one for the women because two women auto selected so now they're going to deliberate and we have a whole kind of criteria of what they should consider um and go for that it's the relay should rank relative like pretty high on their selection and that document is, you know, available to read on usatriathlon.org or something like that. Um, but that that's there, but it's not, it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of ways. I think there's three or four guys who have a realistic spot at being selected now. Um, and it all depends on what this committee of four people decide has been, you know, good enough over the past few years. And with that long pause in 2020 coming into this year in 2021, it's what are you going to value 2019 and 2018 performances or current fitness? So it's this super hard position they're going to be in. And I'm so glad I'm not on the selection committee because, you know, any choice they make, uh, even when you make a great choice as a selection committee, it's the wrong choice for somebody. So that's, that's a tough position for, I think, any country to be in. Yeah, no almost every country's in the same position, or a lot of them are, anyways. Yeah. Um, so that's incredibly difficult. And like you said, you know, the the most quick thought for most people is, oh, pick the people who did the best recently. But it's also only June, and a lot of the races were May, and you know, the Olympics aren't for a couple months, so a lot can change in a couple months, and maybe some of these athletes have saved themselves for their best fitness for then. So it's not necessarily a super easy choice. Um, experience plays a lot. I think, you know, you've got to be very tactical and proven time after time under pressure. And Ben, that's you, man. Well, you know, I like to think that, and I feel like I've put uh, myself up front uh, as one of the guys, but you know, you just never know, like yeah. committees are like, uh, it's, it's always a tough business and, you know, they're going to be pouring over results and having opinions and it's, and sport has a short memory overall. Like, you know, you, you prefer perform well, like a year ago, but you don't do anything recently. People are like, Oh, him, he's washed up or he hasn't done anything. So the committee, you know, is, you know, they're hopefully going to look a lot harder than that. And there's some smart people on that committee, but like, yeah, you just, you never know. So it's, it's a waiting game and it's, it's the first time in the U S history that they're going to have discretionary slots. They've always done it where it's either like 
whoever does the best at this race or a ranking system here, the best performances over these few races. Like they've always done it like that, but because of the relay, they have that discretionary. Uh, and you know, it's, I mean, the men's side is difficult to pick, but the women's side is outrageously hard to choose too. Like there, it's just a, the, the whole pandemic putting things on a hold too. I think like, if you look at our Olympic team, like people took advantage of the opportunity they were given. And that's amazing. Like, I think that's what sport is about. And um, it's been very interesting to watch how it all has unfolded, especially, but like there, as always in Olympics, there's going to be some really good people who are sitting on the sidelines. It's like USA swimming now in track and field where like, that third or fourth place person is watching the games going, I swam faster than that at the trials for, and I could be on the medal stand with those guys. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, COVID, I mean, all the, the look, look at all the races in the last four months, just the times have just increased by like 5%. Like everyone put their work down through COVID. And it, like, like you mentioned earlier, such a unique experience for us to not have to taper and get fit and taper yeah. and get fit for a whole year. And we just focused wow. on one thing. So incredible. Well, yeah. And I, I think I'm so interested to see how the next year or two plays out because I think everybody coped with the pandemic in a different way. Like there were some people who were like, I want to take a step back from the sport. Like whatever, I want to do my thing. Like I'm not going to, you know, go all in like, like, I'm just going to maintain fitness and then we'll build back into it. Like they almost took like a sabbatical. Then you got people on the other side who are like, you know, I got to do, you know, 40 hours a week or I got to train super hard. Just like, and that was their way of just like getting through it. And yeah. there's not really a wrong way, but it's going to be interesting just to see how everything kind of comes back and then levels out. Cause you might have people rising up slowly. Some people might just have a little bit too much um, accumulation where they had this meteoric rise because of that. And then, you know, we all kind of come back down to earth, but like, yeah, yeah, I think the sport of triathlon is going to be really interesting to watch specifically over the next year or two, just with, um, kind of all of that craziness. Yeah. It's been pretty cool. I'm glad we got to race bear Lake. Um, (laughs) I was glad we got to race it, but once I started or once I got on the bike, I was kind of like, dang, I don't know if I want to race right now. That was like, that was a, that was ridiculous, man. That was like grassroots triathlon and like the craziest conditions ever. Yeah. 40 degrees, pissing rain for about two hours, freezing, can't even shift gears or grab bottles or scratch your face or unclip your helmet or tie your shoes. (laughs) That turned into like survival mode, like for some, like for half the field, it was just like, I just got to make it in. Yeah. Well, anyways, um, I have one more question about the Olympics. Okay, hit it. So Morgan Pearson on the men's side has um, done incredibly well these last few races. He won. He won a WTS race, what I believe, or a World Triathlon Series, I call it now. And then he got another podium. So obviously, he's incredibly uh, fit right now, incredibly run fit. So, um, like you mentioned before, um, when it comes to sport in the USA in Olympic sport, the, the whole goal is medals. And, um, do you think there's a scenario where they try to put a domestique in for Morgan Pearson thinking he is their medal hope? If I were in the, the seats of the committee, I would 
you know, at this point, especially since we just lost another spot too. Um, so we only have two spots. I would be taking a closer look at this. Now, as the criteria is written, um, I don't think discretionary selection is either high up or really written into it as much because I think the main main um, objective was to make sure, you know, you're either a metal contender or we're going to look at the relay and take a look at that. So I think that especially now it's going to be, you know, a, a tough choice because you're trying to balance all of these different things. And I think that, you know, what they might try and do if they consider discretionary, it would be more of a, Hey, we need somebody who really fits a relay spot because you could, you could say, okay, let's just find a domestique, like whatever. We got a ton of us guys. We can just tell somebody to train only for the bike. Like let's just get Morgan to the front and then have him win the medal. But you don't want to sacrifice that relay and tell somebody, Hey, don't run at all. So you have to kind of find the right mix of athlete. And then, um, picking a, a discretionary slot too is, is tricky. And, you know, I think Canada, they've been one of the few ones, at least recently to like practice it, kind of go about it. They're not like shy about it. And, um, it's a hard thing to do because you're asking somebody to, uh, to give up, you know, trying to race for themselves at the Olympic games to, for a bigger purpose. Yeah. And it, it also takes a certain athlete to be able to step back and say like, I'll do that. Like I can do that. I'll make sure they get into T2 safely. And, um, I mean, I, I think right now, like a lot of guys would step up, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question and it would be great to be a fly on the wall for the selection committee to see like what they're talking about with all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as like the criteria goes, um, the biggest stresses that I know, um, were obviously the individual medal contender, and then who can give us the best relay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I hear you there. And, you know, maybe somebody, maybe they consider a domestique as like a very, you know, third or fourth criteria that they might think about, but yeah. Yeah. I think that's an aspect though, that they should be looking at just because like with somebody like Morgan, like he just threw himself, you know, up at the front with some of the names of the favorites and um, yeah, the Olympics is in, is just a crazy, crazy race. Like there's, there's nothing like it in the fitness that everybody's at. It's different from any race you've ever done. Like it's just 10 levels higher. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, I've heard from people who've been in those packs, but it's everybody at the fittest they've ever been and pushing the hardest they ever have. And so everybody wants to be into T2 first. Everybody wants to be off their bike first. So yeah, I think I saw, you know, in Hatalka, which, was a solid start list, but obviously it's not Olympic level. Like Matt Sharp, I think delivered Tyler to the front and off the bike as one of the first guys. And I saw his coach say he pushed like over 500 Watts for the last minute to be able to do that. Hmm. Cause it's crazy. Like, and I've tried to do something similar, like at the end of a race in like Claremont or Sarasota, like in that's not domesticing, but just being at the front, like in a long drag out kind of, uh, just pace line like that people are slingshotting off each other it's just it's a complete mess and Tokyo will be interesting because you do have a relatively long straight um, and then you turn into towards the transition area and you're kind of like on this boardwalk of like twisty turny and then basically the the dismount line is right there so um, that's probably going to be yeah that'll be a chaotic part 
to the race, especially if it's one big pack, like some of these races have been. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, this has been so cool to get some insight on the, a little bit more on the ITU side of things. And I mean, let's, you know, there's always a debate of, Oh, are ITU guys coming across going to do well in long course. But there's one thing that's almost for sure is that going from long course only to ITU almost would never like those guys would crush any long course specialist. That being said, we did see Lucy Charles do very well recently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that was, that, that was is crazy to watch a bit of a unique situation where she is that phenomenal swimmer um, and mm. obviously great biker runner, but you know, your average, you know, let's not even average, but a pretty good long course athlete would not even be in the pack at all on the swim. They'd be at the back and it's, it's a totally different energy system like you've seen. And um, these guys are incredible and these women are so fast. So it's definitely super impressive. And, you know, I tried well, at ITU, didn't really work out the swim, but uh, Nick, I think did a couple as well. And forget same. that, man. Yeah. The swim is definitely, I think like the biggest thing just to set you up, but I'd say too, like we're like the, we're, like we were talking about long course is changing and, um, it's going to be, it's going to require a, a different skill set than, you know, people were just able to jump into. Like, it's way different when I, than when I made the jump back in 2016, 17 into, from Olympic stuff into long course. Like, there's a lot of ITU athletes too that, you know, they won't ever do long course necessarily just because they kind of know their strengths lie in, in that different energy system in the short course racing and um, the strength now over a, you know, it's, it's now turning like a three hour and 45 minute race. The guys you see coming across are already like ridiculously strong athletes, like the Norwegians, like Gomez, like the Brownleys, like, and for Dana and the sports changed since for Dana and he turned himself, you know, into an amazing long course athlete too. So, um, yeah, I think that it's, I think that some people who are in IT, like it might it's just as hard in a lot of ways to make that switch vice versa. Um, I think that we just have maybe a bigger pool um, or maybe, you know, the swim is there or something like that, but it's ITU athletes are great, but long course guys too have a, a pretty uh, significant skill set. For sure. Well, cool, uh, man. Like we're going to see what happens. Of course, we're going to look for the news of the selection and we'll make an announcement too on our page too, whatever happens, but. Dude, we're rooting for you. We love racing with you, and we'll see you where, where you're going next. Thanks, man. Yeah, well, the season's kind of up in there waiting for that, but um, at the very least, we'll all be uh, in St. George in September, right? Darn tootin'. Yeah. yeah, there we go. That's it. That's at least you gotta the, you gotta the very – On that course, because I know you. Uh, that's a course for you, and you just didn't have your day, so – yeah, well, hopefully I've had uh, one solid race there in the past and then one not so good one. So I think we're coming back around, but we'll see. That'll be, that'll definitely be a fun one. He's going to be a toasty one. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know if the, did everybody realize that, you know, it's, it's going to be still summer in the desert by the time we get there. Yeah, dude, I, I live there. It sucks. Yeah, oh, no, no, I know. But the people organizing it, like, were they just like, ah, eh, September's fall. Like, I that'll be fine. No <laughs> idea what they're thinking. It's, it's going to be like 100 degrees on the run course. It's already 115 next week in St. George. Freaking coming out loud. Dude, that's the same weather as Phoenix right now. Yeah, 115. Oh, 
God. Freaking gnarly. They're going to have to start the race before the sun comes up. We'll all have to get like uh, night vision goggles, <laughs> swim goggles. Magic Five makes those now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that you have to just push a little button on the side can get that going. Awesome. Well, cool. Right. Well, thanks for spending so much time with us, Ben. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, that was a great interview with Ben Canute. What a champ. I mean, the guy, that was one of our longer interviews, but it felt like we just had so much to talk about and we could have kept going. Yeah. Um, the guy has so many interesting perspectives and so much experience in the sport and has done an amazing number of uh, incredible things out there. So really cool to have him on and hear about his opinions on different things. And we're hoping for him on the Olympic selection. It's going to be tough. That American team is really strong. Um, obviously you've got some guys on there who are, uh, metal hopefuls. So, um, we'll see what happens, but regardless, if he doesn't go to the Olympics, he's probably just gonna be racing us more. So, you know, that's an extra reason for us to hope for the Olympics for him. (laughs) (laughs) You will be on as many start lines for a little while there, Ben. So that's good for us. But, um, yeah, I mean, I guess my takeaway was he's just like such a straight shooter, very pragmatic, doesn't have a lot of time for nonsense or anything like I even, you know, talked with Jim Vance a bit because he's uh, a while back. I was trying to get on the coaching platform that they use. And, you know, Jim was very, you know, always spoke very highly of Ben's work ethic and, and demeanor. So obviously that showed he's gives respect where it's due. He doesn't talk a lot of shit. Um, I wouldn't mind if he did. I would love to hear him talk some shit, Ben. Come on. Yeah. Ben. Next time he's on, we'll have, we'll give him a few more curveballs what what do you think about so-and-so or i'll be like i'll get three names and i'll go you gotta fuck one marry one kill one go yeah yeah, that's a good way to get people to want to come on to our podcast yeah (laughs) no i wouldn't do that to ben he's such a nice guy but uh yeah yeah, that was a long episode this will be a, a long one coming up we're gonna have um probably recaps from the next races we'll talk a little bit more about ecuador we will be announcing our next giveaway for Patreon on the next episode because we'll have that sorted out. It'll be a pretty good product giveaway. Um, it won't be quite as sexy as the speed hounds that were given away last month, but it'll still be the products we use all the time that you can try for free. It might be coffee, it might be supplements, it might be a personal hat that Jackson has signed and given to you. I don't know. We'll see. I might make it with my own bare hands, so I can't guarantee the quality, but... <laughs> do our best to get you guys something awesome and uh yeah if you haven't seen it yet we do have our own coffee roasts available from stoked roasters on our team store unfortunately only available in the usa so i'm sorry for all you canadian fans but if you like go to the states and you want to order it and bring it back you should do that well because... i think if you go to the stoked website you can order any of any of their stuff i think that ships to canada but our personal store can't be bothered <laughs> It's definitely well. Either way, Nick, how do the coffees taste? I know you've probably tried them. Man, I don't know. Like I, I haven't had much but Stoked Roasters in my own home brewer for many years. But I do go to many houses and I have other people's coffee and stop at coffee shops. And I can just say, like, the crema coming off of the Stoked beans, it's like much rich, much more rich and creamy. When the other ones just seem to be more watery, um, a little bit more burnt. So I don't know. I just whatever Stoked is doing. Like I've just been such a fan and anytime I change it at home and Karen, uh, my wife, she, 
runs into the beans and she is like, did you change the beans or did you mess up the milk? And I'm like, it's just new beans. She's like, this isn't stoked. I need stoked beans. So <laughs> you can tell. But I can attest. Um, I don't drink a lot of coffee, but I have had a couple of Nick's special brews from his special machine and it's just unbelievable how good that coffee is so yeah um, treat yourself and <laughs> we got to have stoked giveaway at some point so let's let's make sure we, we get that whether it's this month or another month we'll make it happen yeah i'll see if we can do like a three month subscription oh that'd be awesome yeah anyways more to come thanks for listening thanks for your support and your patronage we love doing this um and talking about our life even though it's you know might be cool <laughs> it's we're, we're doing it. a few hundred people think it's cool so thanks for thinking that yep. and uh we'll sign it off peace yeah. oh peace oh <laughs> butchered it i got ish to do flying through the sky in my parachute dancing on the couch like i'm tommy cruise on a one-man mission trying to see it through